Welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden, your host. Hope you're having a great week. Playing with your dogs, getting reacquainted with your family. Who knows? It's that time of year. It's also another time of year, and that is when we start looking at new dogs. We'll cover that. But primarily, we're going to do a deep dive into the bird most favored by most of you, the ringneck pheasant. Yeah, I've been threatening to do this for a while, and I finally did all the research, and hopefully I'll be sharing with you some of the things that uh, maybe you didn't know or you knew a little bit about and you wanted to go a little deeper yourself. So let's take a long, long look at that long-tailed bird and the mystique and the practical side of pheasant hunting, among other things. You know, I was so proud of how I was managing Flick's uh, pads over the hunting season, and I mentioned that he tore one up, of course, after the season, but he's getting back into shape now. His foot is fine, and now we got to make up for two weeks of laying around the house. Yeah, both of us. (laughs) On top of that, uh, though, lots of talk, and one of the reasons I uh, picked both of the topics for today... uh, First off, went to one of our NAVDA chapter fun shoots at the Redmond Rod and Gun Club here in Oregon. Saw some old friends, made some new friends, and uh, on top of everything else, uh, did a lot of polishing on that promise I made to you to shoot 100 rounds a week starting in, well, starting Memorial Day weekend and then working through the entire summer. And um, that new instinctive style of shooting, which is old as well to me, and old in general, heck. Doing well, thank you. How about yourself? How was your weekend? All your conversations at the at the fun shoot, everybody there had uh, lots to say, including a lot to say about buying new puppies, heard at least three stories, met a couple young dogs, and... Uh, so um, perfect and, uh, and uh, appropriate uh, for our Monday morning confession. Yeah, a um, while back I asked if you are um, shopping for a puppy, uh, <clears throat> you haven't gotten permission yet, but you still want one. Lots of, uh, lots of comments there. Brett Cochran says, six weeks until we pick ours up the key, was telling the kids we were getting a puppy before asking permission. Probably of she who must be obeyed. He says, the wheedling of five kids can be extremely persuasive. Brian Sales says, new Brittany coming in a couple months, and it was her idea. I got her convinced I'm not thrilled about it. Shh. Yeah, reverse psychology. (laughs) And Nick Spurlock, we're going to be related. Nick is picking one up from Three Devils Kennels. I'll have two under a year. The wife will have so much fun when I'm at work. Okay, yeah, keep telling yourself that, Nick. Maybe it will be true. (laughs) Okay, Jack Gable, I appreciate your warning. It's clear to your readers that you're not selling any puppies, but Facebook's algorithms paint by numbers. They can't discern... Take care in headlining your articles. This one could get the page dumped and land you a big headache. 
getting it up again. Yeah, I never thought about that. I did did learn that the hard way over the weekend, looking to trade some ammo, 12-gauge for 20-gauge, and boom, got kicked back before I even finished. All right, so they are watching. Big Brother is out there, and they are watching. George Cummins says, uh, yeah, his wife, she wants one of her own. Another great ghost for y'all over there, and good luck. I hope you pull it off uh, to all of you no matter what you're looking for or why, uh, should be a lot of fun. Uh, puppy season is upon us, and uh, man, oh man, I wish I, well, we might be getting one, but it won't be that kind. Anyway, I'll make do. I don't mind another corgi around the house either. All right, so uh, we're just about ready to start, but let me remind you that the um, Upland Nation podcast is brought to you in part by Sage and Breaker Gun Care Products, crafted at the highest caliber. Always free shipping. There's that new modifiable bore cleaning kit, faster, easier, more versatile way to take care of your guns. Learn more at sageandbreaker.com. Yeah, you know, this is one that I've wanted to do for a long time. It's kind of one of my my pet peeves, I guess I'll call it. And that is, um, I, I wish I knew more about them so that I could hunt them better. But then I could also know why maybe some of the things are happening to ringneck pheasants that uh, are happening to them. Maybe you've had the same kind of conversations internally or with your friends that's one reason. Uh, the other is no matter who I interview on the podcast or for magazine articles or who I hunt with on the TV show, I still have those questions. And it, it you know, that's the kind of stuff that gnaws on me. I want to learn things. And I think you do too. That's why you're listening. And so I'm going to do a little bit to help you in that regard uh, as much as I can. I can't you know, I'm not going to literally write the book on it, but I, I did a lot of research and hopefully some of that will help you in one way or another. Or as my old high school English professor used to say, um, at that inevitable cocktail party, you'll have something to contribute to the discussion, especially if it's a cocktail party full of people like us, right? So it started with almost half of you on almost every survey I've done over the last 10 or 12 years saying that the bird you hunt the most is the ringneck pheasant. I understand for all those reasons, it's gaudy, it's big, it makes a good target, although a very deceptive one. It is uh, almost always for most of us an excuse to drive somewhere and have an adventure of one sort or another. So the ringneck pheasant is right up there at the top for so many of us. And then you look at the numbers and, um, well, may, maybe, maybe morning doves outnumber uh, pheasants in the, in the hunter's bag every year. Not by much. Most years in South Dakota uh, alone, over a million birds are being taken by almost 200,000 hunters. Does that mean it's the best known member of the family? No. Does it mean it's the most familiar to humans? Not even close. 
because the pheasant family also includes a species named Gallus gallus. Some people call it the red jungle fowl. Most of us know us, buck, buck, as the chicken. Yeah, it may be distant, but they are related. But here we're going to focus on the ditch parrot, the china bird, or in England, they still call it the common pheasant. And, and it is, as you'll find out. We're going to talk a lot about our uh, heritage from across the pond today when we're talking about the ringneck pheasant here on the Upland Nation podcast. Scientific name, Fasiana colchicus. They'll eat just about anything. They live from 10 to 20 months once they are fledged and can actually escape predators. If you add the tail in, they could be as long as three feet and weigh almost three pounds. That's a lot of bird. No wonder we chase them. Not the only reason, but one of many. You know the coloring. The female, she's kind of boring. In fact, if you're a little colorblind like me, it's kind of hard to tell the difference between a hen pheasant and a, a, a sage grouse small or a sharp tail large. Both of them have confused me in the past. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. The male, uh, some variations, but you know the basic theme of a male ringneck pheasant, white ring around its neck, iridescent blue-green head, bold red patches around the eyes, and that's where the similarities start to kind of dwindle. They could could have all sorts of variations on that, plus all of those things along its back. You know, you know what I mean. If you've shot more than one or two, you know. Some very light ones, some very dark ones. Once in a while, an albino. We found a black one in South Dakota a couple of years ago. Let's just suffice it to say that while we kind of know the basic look, there are variations, and that's due in large part to the hybridization that's taken place over the years. We call them China pheasants, or we think they came from China, but as we'll learn today, they come from all sorts of other places as well. They'll produce 8 to 15 eggs, averaging about 10 or 12. They're pale olive in color, and they'll be laid over a two- to three-week period, April to June, that's when the incubation period starts. The hen lays her final egg and says, yep, time to go to work. Starts laying on the nest almost all the time. 22 to 27 days is the usual length for incubation. Then the chicks, once they're hatched, will stay near the hen, but they'll leave the nest. They're, um, let's see, what do we call that? Uh, they're um, uh, precocious is what it is, I think. They'll, um, they'll be out feeding uh, a few hours after they've cracked the egg and can walk around. They grow fast. They'll fly in 12 or 14 days. And by the age of 15 weeks, you've probably shot one or two early in the season. They barely get their coloring on the, uh, on the male side, uh, but they're just about the same size at 15 weeks of age. In fact, that's when a lot of, uh, if you're buying pheasants for training or something, that's about what they'll call an adult bird. Like I said, they'll eat just about anything animal and vegetable, fruit, seeds, grain. Did I say grain? Yeah, that's right. Mast, berries, leaves, ants, 
wireworms, ant eggs, caterpillars, grasshoppers, of course, and even lizards, small rodents, and even small birds. They get as well as they give, though. We've all heard the rumors, and I've seen some videos of deer eating pheasant eggs and uh, ground squirrels eating pheasant nestlings. So, uh, you know, it's Mother Nature is a harsh mistress, but she, um, she's got a plan and we'll never figure it out. All right, let's start with the off-season because I'm so fascinated by some of the behaviors that these birds exhibit. Many we, we've either seen or we've seen images of, whether they're videos, paintings, some classic paintings, and then a whole bunch of uh, pictures out there, whether it's a magazine cover or some guy on Facebook. The main, the male, of course, uh, crows and calls, and that's how he kind of tells everybody, stay away, this is my place. He will approach an intruder with both ends up in the air and may, just like a bull on all those cartoons, tear up the grass that he will then throw behind him. That's supposed to scare off competitors, and usually it works, but sometimes they'll fight. They'll display at each other, then they'll flutter upwards, and that's that classic picture once in a lifetime somebody with a good camera will get breast to breast, and then wham! They'll bite at each other's throats. They'll do that a few times, even using their spurs and their claws once in a while. Usually one realizes he's not going to win, and he'll just skulk away before a fatal blow is rained on him. The females, of course, are watching this whole spectacle from a distance, assembling in breeding groups focused on one male and that territory. Yeah, he'll have a dozen, maybe sometimes up to 20 different girlfriends. That's why it's so hard to shoot out, if you will, shoot out uh, a pheasant population. Here's one. Uh, this one I didn't know, and I bet you didn't either. Male birds will do what the biologists call tidbitting. They'll pose with their head low while calling to the female. And a morsel of food he's put on the ground right in front of him. Eventually, she'll be tempted to come up and get that grasshopper or that green bit or whatever it is, and poof. That's kind of like a first date for um, ringneck pheasants, at least. Yeah, even even in that world, you got to buy her dinner first. Author Ken Kaufman, by the way, if you don't know Ken Kaufman, he writes a lot for Audubon and everybody else. This guy knows his stuff, and he's a pretty good artist, too. So Google Ken Kaufman, two N's in Ken, one F in Kaufman. He says, the native range of the ringneck uh, stretches from the temperate regions of Asia, Black Sea and the Caspian Sea over there in virtually in the Middle East, and then in Korea and the, of course the coast of China, and then there are some native birds in Japan that are probably really closely related. And you know, I knew some of that, and maybe you did too, if, especially if you follow the Wing Shooting USA Facebook page. We have a lot of friends from Korea and Japan who are hunting pheasants frequently. Yeah, there's big gun dog communities in both those countries. And I can't wait to learn more about that. But uh, at this point, I know that uh, there are birds there and they're native birds. I'm sure they've done some things to stock them as well. But anyway, uh, one of the ironies of speaking of stocking, 
is that most ringneck research has been conducted in places where the bird was stalked. All over Europe, all over North America, even Australia and New Zealand. <laughs> so, so we know a lot about how the bird lives when you drop it into someplace foreign, but there's not a lot of research going on in, in the hotbeds of uh, ringneck pheasant uh, nativedom. And which brings me to an interesting sidebar, and, and you know, we can debate this all day, but <clears throat> pheasants, chuckers, to a great degree, even California quail and Hungarian partridge, and maybe more that I can't think of right off. The argument always goes back to, hey, we need more habitat. That's why populations aren't growing, or that's why populations are shrinking. But all those birds have flourished in the past, and some are still flourishing now, and they were introduced. And that is contrary to a lot of biologists and a lot of conservation groups' philosophies. Now, I understand we need to balance everything, but it's a point to ponder, that's for sure. You're listening to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden, your host. We're talking all things pheasants. Uh, we've gotten from where they were to um, to what they are. Phasianus colchicus, as I said, a member of the Phasianidae family, the pheasant family. Of course, in Latin, Phasianus means pheasant. Colchicus, though, is the land that is now called Georgia in, um, I'll call it Eastern Europe or Central Asia, right in there on the Black Sea. That's where pheasants first became known to Europeans. And uh, 20 million years ago, they'd diverged from the jungle fowl and what became domestic chicken stock. Hey, I just made a joke and I didn't even know it. In the U.S., of course, we know them as ringnecks. We know them as ditch parrots or china birds. Or You probably have your own dirty name for them after they've foiled you once again with a shotgun but um in china where it all started <laughs> they're known as mountain chickens in 2005 biologists determined that the pheasant family has the smallest known genome of all living amniotes all sorts of you know people with genes it's fascinating to me that the bird we pursue the most and that is, you know, uh, quite common in so much of the world has such a narrow, well, let me call it a shallow gene pool. That's one way to put it. And some of those genes came over to uh, the United States as early as 1733 when the governor of New York imported a few from England of all places. Uh, they didn't last very long and subsequent attempts by George Washington, yeah, that George Washington, and Ben Franklin's son-in-law also failed, and for a century America remained pheasantless. Now today, count them up, if you do your research, dig in a little deeper, pheasants have been introduced into 40 states. Some it worked, some it didn't. South Dakota, named the ringneck pheasant its state bird and then of course then came the t-shirt south dakota where we eat our state bird 
There were releases of wild pheasants from China in the late 1800s. We'll talk more about those in the United States soon, but the foundation of most of the wild bird populations in the U.S. primarily, primarily derived originally from English game farm importations. Yeah, English. But first, let's go there across the pond to jolly old England and its um, nearby neighbors. When did the history of the pheasant in Britain begin? Well, probably when Roman officers who bred them for the table brought them to France and then across the channel. How they got there? Probably Greeks who brought them from Asia originally. By 1059 AD, the bird was kind of going wild out there. Again, an argument for more planting if you're of a like mind. And then that so-called Old English pheasant was introduced to cross with the Chinese ringneck. And uh, all of those came together and uh, created the already hybridized version that we look at today. Back in the day... Pheasant hunting was basically a matter of going out and trying to find birds and throw a net over them. When firearms were finally common and shooting flying got more popular, then fascinating fact just again, the Batu became popular among the high-styled set. Batu means something to us who shoot clay targets, but back in the day in England, and that would be about the third quarter of the 19th century, they started doing what we now call a driven shoot or a continental style shoot. Basically, it did start over in Europe, and the basic idea both in Europe and then eventually in Great Britain was uh, they would stock the woods with a bunch of birds and then everybody would walk in a line through the woods and put birds in the air and then the privileged few with their firearms would shoot at them. Eventually they got too tired of that so they'd park themselves down at the bottom of the hill and all the peons would push the birds out of the woods into the air over the guns and boom, there you have it popularized in the 1840s, 50s, 60s. Edward Albert, uh, probably the most notable royal, shooting thousands per week at that game back in that time period. <sighs> Boy, those days will never be here again, at least in the U.S. Uh, but even there, of course, most of those birds were introduced days or weeks prior to the shoot. Fun fact... Still, to this day in England, pheasants are poached by, well, the usual suspects. But because they have fallen out of favor with the market, if you will, because over there you shoot a bird, you can sell it to somebody, they're stealing chicks from the pens and raising them up and then selling them back to the gamekeepers for another driven shoot. I got to take a break, get a little bit of water. Don't go away. I'll be right back. 
I'm Scott Linden. You're listening to the Upland Nation podcast, where we are learning everything we ever cared to know about the ringneck pheasant, Phasianus colchicus, and some relatives distant and close by, and also all the things that affect our culture today. You know, they say if you uh, ignore history, you're bound to repeat it. One of the things I'm liking about what I'm doing in this area is learning all the things that did work, didn't work, or could help us, whether it's propagating more birds, habitat, or just becoming a better hunter. I'll remind you right now that the Upland Nation podcast is brought to you in part by Dr. Tim's Performance Dog Food. 30% off your first order. Just use the code UPLANDNATION at drtims.com. Have enjoyed learning a lot from Tim Hunt, veterinarian, sled dog racer, and the developer of those foods. Reminded once again that marine sources of protein also mean marine sources of fat. Critical to your dog because that fat is four times more concentrated than the fat you get out of plants. Dr. Tim's salmon oil is sourced from the United States, Chile, and Norway. It's the good stuff. If you don't know where the fats in your dog food are coming from, maybe you ought to learn more at drtims.com. All right. Back in the USA, as the Chuck Berry song goes, Judge Owen Denny was the, let's see, what was he? The United States Consul in China, in Tianjin, China, back in 1877. Spent a few years out there, was fascinated with the birds that he saw out there of all sorts. When he moved to Shanghai in 1880, promoted to the post of Consul General, he thought, you know, I wonder if some of those birds might survive in my home state of Oregon. And of course, we're grateful to him. I've, I've walked to the ground where those birds were first brought. And uh, he wrote to a friend and said, not only do they taste good, they'll furnish fine sport. So he went to Chinese farmers and asked them to net him a few dozen, and they did. He put them in a crate, put them on a boat. And uh, 60 of those birds made the voyage across the Pacific to Port Townsend, Washington. Yeah, not what you thought, huh? He also shipped over some Mongolian sand grouse and chafu partridges, a whole bunch of feed, trees of the pong tau or flat peach, and a ton of bamboos, which he hoped the birds would live on while they made their journey. And most of them survived landing in Port Townsend on March 13, 1881. The other birds didn't quite fare as well. They're all gone and just distant memories in the world of bird stocking. But the ones that survived were toted here and there all the way to Portland on trains and on wagons and then smaller boats. And most of them freaked out and if you've ever hauled birds in a box, you know what happens to them. Well, it happened to most of those as well. But some survived and were released on Sovies Island in the Columbia River near Portland. And then over the course of the next couple years, Judge Denny brought more birds over direct to Portland. And then his brother would pick them up 
and released them near the family's homestead in the Willamette Valley near Albany, Oregon. It was a resounding success. Uh, They flourished and, in fact, were soon spreading to surrounding counties. So the judge, good Owen Denny, used his political connections and finally banned hunting because, you know, back in the day, you could hunt anything anytime. Got that fixed for his beloved ringneck pheasants until 10 years later in 1892 when the first pheasant hunting season in Oregon took place and guys like us killed 50,000 birds on opening day. Well, that didn't even put a dent in the population because within months, well, years, let's just call it years, uh, pheasants had spread into Washington. They were going east. We had them right out here where I live right now and even further east, and they've worked their way further east since. But then they were also helped along. Uh, Ringnecks were introduced across the country from Washington and Oregon. I've mentioned some of the European sources. 19 states now have a pretty good population. Most of those, you can hunt them at least part of the year, part of the time. South Dakota, of course, has millions. It's incredible how a stocked bird can adapt like that. Of course, things were a little different back then. We'll talk about that later. I feel honored to have been in Redfield, South Dakota, basically on the anniversary of the first pheasant hunt there about 102, 103 years ago. Oh, by the way, they're doing just fine over there. Thank you very much. They're not only good to eat, of course. They're wary. If you've ever hunted one, you know that. A tough target because we're always aiming for the tail, not the head. All the things that make sport sporty are all balled up and baked into the ringneck pheasant. Pardon the pun. Now, they fit so well into an available niche that was vacated, thanks in large part to our predecessors, vacated by native prairie chickens and sharptails who couldn't cope with cropland taking over their prairie land. The ringnecks love that kind of mosaic, if you will, of crops and cover and all the stuff that makes classic pheasant habitat. Uh, It's scary to think that that could happen again in the other direction, and we'll talk a little bit more about that down the road. But right now, we are still seeing some of the positive effects of Well, what they used to call the soil bank program in the late 50s, early 60s, uh, it was a predecessor to conservation reserve program where basically farmers would be paid, as you know, to stop growing crops and conserve valuable topsoil by not tilling, not cultivating, not plowing. Yeah, that worked out great, really great. The Conservation Reserve Program and its distant relatives are doing the same thing. Unfortunately, the amount of acreage still shrinking every year. (sighs) Maybe we can get some of that back. It's all about the federal government and who's in power and what they want to do with the money they have. They've decided that putting money into effectively renting acreage from farmers is not as good an idea as it used to be, but 
when you and I and a couple million others like us take political action, it might help. That's one reason we support people like pheasants forever. All right. Well, we are halfway through our deep dive into ringneck pheasants. A lot more to talk about right here, and I hope you're enjoying it on the Upland Nation podcast, sponsored in part by Happy Jack Dog Care Products, remedies for skin, coat, parasite, fleas, and tick problems. You name it, they can cover it. Maybe save you a trip to the vet some of those minor things or those annoying things, uh, whether it's a cut pad like Flickhead or you're looking for something besides Seresto to deal with your external parasites, uh, happyjackinc.com, happyjackinc.com is where you go. And once you've mastered that, of course, don't forget to... um, visit findbirdhuntingspots.com. I hope you'll take a look. That's the new website. Getting a lot of response there and a a lot of traffic. Thank you very much. You name it, we've got it. You're looking for places to go. Uh, We'll be talking about that more during this podcast uh, and stuff to take care of your dog, some shooting tips, a bunch of videos, you name it. It's all right there at findbirdhuntingspots.com. Fascinating bird, fascinating story. Why did it do so well when we introduced it, well, fundamentally, 130, 40 years ago? It does no harm. It has, yes, it has its share of um, what I'll call enemies. But as I noted earlier, uh, it it really fills a niche that had been uh, emptied by our own and uh, related efforts to cultivate the ground, hunt really hard and feed our family as we're crossing across the Midwest on the Oregon Trail, whatever. Now, compare that to, say, starlings, um, who deprive bluebirds and other cavity nesters of their homes, or pigeons, which are also an immigrant, of course, and, uh, well, you know what kind of a nuisance they can be, even though we love them for their dog training value. Pheasants, to a great degree, have have nowhere near the nefarious purpose that some of those other birds have. And that's uh, probably true for the chucker and the Hungarian partridge, among others. So, uh, you know, a lot of times introducing a game bird to the right place at the right time seems to make a lot of sense, at least to some of us. Yeah. That whole party of uh, flourishing populations and wonderful habitat uh, and more introductions, by the way, continued into the 1960s, and then things started unraveling. South Dakota's tally started falling to fewer than 2 million birds in 1976. In Ohio, populations dropped to 96%, no, to 4% of what they had been. 
North Dakota, same thing, dropped 85% in just a few years. You know the story there. I don't need to dwell on all the bad news, but the fact is that a lot of states in this country that may have been known in one way or another as a pheasant um, hotbed are no longer. God bless you if you're working on that, whether you're working for the government, for one of the conservation groups, or you're just working on your own out there. Keep up the good work. Every little bit helps. Some suggest the reason there aren't birds in some of those places is they were shot out. Now, let's just set that. Let's just put that to bed once and for all. I mentioned earlier, uh, a male ringneck pheasant will have 10 to 20 girlfriends every year. Okay, with 20 girls producing 12 to 15 eggs a year, and that's not counting re-nesting. Yeah, do the math. That's a lot of chicks on the ground, or at least the potential for them. Shooting a few males is not going to harm that part of the reproductive cycle. Okay, thank you. Bad weather? Yeah. In fact, we had some ugly weather towards the end of this year's, this past year's South Dakota season. And it does have some effect. Now, they're pretty darn hardy, that's for sure. But you get enough cold, you get enough snow that turns to ice, and all of a sudden birds are helpless. How about disease? Yeah, we've come to the conclusion, but nobody will confirm it because they don't care, and I'll get to that in a minute. Nobody will confirm that the reason there are virtually no pheasants left in California is West Nile virus. And that's just one of the culprits. You know, it could be salmonella. It could be any of the other diseases that float around in the bird world. Dwindling habit in habitat in general? Sure. Predators? Yes. Whether they're egg robbers or, you know, uh, carnivores killing live birds, everything is going to have an effect. Some things more than others. Farming itself became the ringneck's worst enemy when it became economically feasible to use pesticides and fertilizers to maximize yield on marginal land. So those acres that were in the soil bank program and even now in the CRP program, well, when corn gets to eight bucks a bushel, it's worth throwing some nitrogen on there and draining and tiling those pieces of the field, and people are doing it. Just watch the ebb and flow of CRP enrollment, and you'll figure that out for yourself. The soil bank program ended in 63. The last vestiges uh, fell off the radar in 72, and foreign grain sales started rising. Farmers started cutting hayfields earlier. They were mowing road ditches, farming to the edges. They killed all the weeds that were wonderful habitat and a food source. And they eliminated grain stubble right after the harvest. Those big weedy fence rows just disappeared. Here's David Watts in, in, in Ohio's Division of Wildlife said, a farmer would plow up to the fence post and tilt them in the other direction. Then his neighbor would plow the other side and tilt them back, and eventually they'd get together and take out the fence entirely. Yep, 
probably got a couple good acres out of that too. And maybe they got some $4 corn, who knows? So it's a lot of things, but quite often these days, farms are like deserts, at least for wildlife. There's nothing to support wildlife in a lot of those farms because that doesn't pay. But hope springs eternal. You're listening to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden, your host. Thank you for um, sticking with me as I, as I guess I'm just standing on my soapbox and, and sharing the stuff that is of concern to me and maybe to you as well. I said hope springs eternal, and it does. The Conservation Reserve Program is still alive. It may not be well, but it's not on life support. The number of acres enrolled continues to drop. I think the high was about 33 million acres. Now it's down to about 22 million acres. All about money and who's in charge of it in Washington, D.C. So if you want to... Um, effect change in that world work with people who work with those people like pheasants forever the national wildlife federation uh, safari club international the audubons and others yeah by the way keep up the good work all you folks in those areas now there is a dark side and i alluded to it as well ringneck pheasants aren't just the heroes to all of us who have gun dogs and shotguns they do have an effect on other wildlife particularly other birds yes like cowbirds and i think mockingbirds too for that matter they will lay their eggs in other birds nests and because those chicks will hatch earlier than many of the other birds chicks will hatch the hen will then adopt in effect adopt the young pheasants and abandon the other eggs which she probably thinks aren't going to hatch that leads to some interesting situations if you will um, even some hybridization although most of it's not going to work it does mean all those other birds are being affected their populations are being affected as well and like i said a young pheasant will adopt whatever critter they see first just like many of the geese and, and other uh, larger birds like like storks and, and and cranes they'll adopt whatever they see first as their mother pheasants also compete with other native birds for resources several studies have shown that they can decrease the population of bob whites and many of the partridges because they are competing for the same food in the same habitat there's only so many grasshoppers to go around. And the pheasants, of course, are going to, well, heck, they outweigh several bobwhites. They may also introduce disease. I've talked about uh, how they are affected by disease, but they also introduce diseases that they are carriers of but are not affected by. And those diseases can affect the rough grouse, the chucker, the gray partridge in particular. They also have a tendency to harass and kill other birds. Now this I would have watched. If I could have seen a video of this, I would have watched it. One study noted that pheasants versus prairie chickens. In the battles, and where they found enough battles, I'll never know, pheasants won 
78% of the time. Now, interestingly, have you ever read that in the ongoing debate over how to save prairie chickens? Neither have I. Okay, anyhow, good things are happening. I've mentioned that. You want to learn more about all those good things? Join Pheasants Forever. Get involved in your local chapter. The Land Conservation and Wildlife... No, let's see, what is The Land Conservation and Water Fund, which is um, 900 million bucks from oil taxes, you know, oil drilling taxes. That's going to flow into more habitat as well. That happened, uh, started uh, finally, finally seeing funding last year. Some states, of course, are right at the forefront, uh, whether it's South Dakota or even Kansas to a degree. They're recognizing the economic value in pheasant hunting. And that's a good thing because, as we all know, you can follow the money when it comes to habitat improvement and conservation in general. Where can you hunt these wily birds? Well, in your mind every day, in your dreams every night. And then in much of the Midwest, yeah, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, North Dakota, South Dakota, Kansas, as far south as Texas, and if you're so inclined, of course, in Canada, even in Mexico. I've been invited on a hunt in Calexico, the Hawaiian Islands, Chile, Uruguay, Argentina, New Zealand, Australia, most of us are going to go to one of those other golden states. South Dakota, North Dakota, Kansas, Montana, Iowa. You tell me that every year in your surveys. I appreciate that. Thank you. So in conclusion, of course, it's complicated. Some game departments, such as California, just refuse to do anything to support a non-native species. And whether they admit it or not, that may be true in other states. There's a lot of hope out there, that's for sure. The pheasant has its proponents, and I've mentioned who they are, and hopefully you are one as well. It also has its detractors. It is non-native. It does displace other bird populations. It's being hunted, and in and of itself, something that's huntable is repugnant to people who don't like shotguns, don't like people who carry shotguns, don't like people who enslave bird dogs, let alone kill stuff and eat it. Our only recourse is to get involved, join the organizations, get out there and get dirt under your fingernails, write a letter to your congressperson, go hunting, help others learn to go hunting, the ringneck pheasant is the gaudiest, noisiest, most beautiful of the game birds we pursue. It is the poster boy for wildlife conservation. Consider getting involved. Phew, thank you. I hope you learned something. If you did, please rate or review the Upland Nation podcast wherever you get yours. Tell your friends. Subscribe. Sure would appreciate that. And, of course, 
come back next week and listen again. Most of you know this, but if you don't, you know, all the episodes are archived in all those places. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, you name it. Go back and dig one up and learn something. Thank you. Okay, I'll close with a riddle for you. Some of you know the answer to this. About 35% of you probably already know this. What do you call a bird dog who's also a magician? A labracadabrador. Thanks for listening. I'm Scott Linden. See you in the field.